Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back. This week we have a storytelling episode for you. We're joined by Kathleen Langone, who is both a podcaster and a writer, and she's advised state agencies on New England history. In addition to her publication, she's also been interviewed on TV and radio, and her podcast series, People Hidden in History, started two years ago and has been downloaded in 15 countries. Her theme today is about a little-known historical character whose story deserves to be told, but who often had associations with much more famous people, such as Abraham Lincoln and FDR. This is the story of Amalia Kusner the famed artist of the Gilded Age who painted the Astors, the Vanderbilts, European royalty. She exemplified many traits of a woman of the time as well as a woman ahead of her time, and her accomplishments really were part of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. To learn about how she marketed herself and sometimes took treacherous journeys to paint those most famous at the end of the 19th century, today Kathleen is going to tell Kusner's story. She's presented Kusner's story before through the National Platform of History Camp America, and she's also told it in two parts in the People Hidden in History podcast series. But today we're lucky to have her deliver a condensed version of this. So you can see the longer versions in People Hidden in History, but today we're going to have a shorter version of this. And I think this is a real treat for listeners to hear about art in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. When we think of the Gilded Age versus the Progressive Age, We don't think of those characters in those defined historical periods as living with the ideals of both, with the robber barons and incredibly rich industrialists and their families, versus those from the emerging labor movements and the women suffragists, striving for the vote and equal rights. But I'm going to tell you of a person that really did live to share some of the ideals of both of those periods, and that is the artist Amalia Kusner. Many of you likely have not heard of her, but if you were anyone of the who's who of the Gilded Age or on the list of the 400 originally maintained by Mrs. Lena Astor, not only would you know her, but you would have sought her services as an artist. These are just a few of the families who were painted by her, the Astors, the Vanderbilts, and the Goulds. And added to this list was also European royalty. 
I know of Amalia since I am distantly related to her and grew up around some of her miniature portraits that were stored in my grandmother's gold curio cabinet. This is the story of Amalia Kusner and her rise to fame as an indispensable artist to the elite, but also someone who lived her life as quite an independent woman, answering only to herself. Her life started simply in Greencastle, Indiana, being born in 1864 during the Civil War. Shortly after, the family, including her older brother and sister, moved to Terre Haute, Indiana, which borders on Illinois. Her father, who repaired musical instruments, was able to get a property in downtown Terre Haute through a family connection to run his repair business and have the family live on the second floor of that building. Though a middle-class family, they were very musical and the children would put on plays on a mock stage set up in their living room. Both music and the arts were very encouraged. In fact, Amalia's brother Albert would later become a famous composer in the late 19th century. Amalia did indeed show an early talent for art, and at a young age, only six years old, she was sent to St. Mary of the Woods Academy nearby Terre Haute. She was taken under the wing of a very artistically talented nun, Sister Maurice, and later got further artistic training in Terre Haute in addition to some brief schooling after high school in New York City in the 1880s, where she became fluent in multiple languages. Her early works were miscellaneous styles, including watercolors done on tiles, but then she started to concentrate on miniature portraits, which was seeing a resurgence even aside the rise of photography. These portraits were often only four by six inch ovals, but her details, even down to individual hair strands, were amazing. She started a business in Terre Haute in the mid-1880s, but was also promoted by her brother, Albert Kusner, who had moved to Chicago to further expand his music composing business, and the exposure in Chicago greatly increased her clients. Let's fast forward to 1891. Through a connection with a classmate, Alice Fisher, who was a rising dramatic actress in New York City at the time, she traveled out to that city and is introduced to a Mrs. Henry Havemeyer, who at this point is a strong patron of the arts and had an ongoing professional relationship with Mary Cassatt, as both a patron of Cassatt's and working with Cassatt to amass Havemeyer's fine art collection. Mrs. Havemeyer is quite impressed by Amalia's work and commissions her for her own portrait. And over just a few years, Amalia becomes the sought-after artist. Also note that early in her New York career, she briefly held a position as a staff artist at Tiffany's, possibly doing paintings on glass. But the lore is that her own works were not sufficiently promoted and she left, possibly only working there half a year. And let's highlight this for a moment. This position was held soon after her arrival in New York City, prior to her having the impressive connections, and certainly would have been steady employment with a quite famous stained glass company. And she leaves, 
This is an early indication that her goals were far beyond what typically would have been seen for someone of her class and being a woman. Initially, Amalia's fees are around $400, but by the late 1890s, Amalia's commission could be $1 to $2,000, and she refuses to accept less. She is also very adept at marketing herself in the following ways. First, through an error in an earlier magazine article, which mistakenly has her 10 years younger, she keeps that age publicly and appears to be in her 20s at this time rather than in her 30s, knowing a young, attractive woman artist is far more intriguing. And the ruse extends to all documents that might mention her age, including passport applications. And let it be said, she possessed a natural beauty with large, luminous dark eyes, a perfectly proportioned figure, often photographed in off-the-shoulder outfits, no high-neck lace-collared dresses for her. And she professes to be primarily self-taught, usually only mentioning sometimes the Indiana school of her childhood, St. Mary of the Woods Academy. So she appears to be a professional with an intrinsic artistic talent with essentially no training. She then gets connected with Minnie Padgett, a dollar heiress who spent time both in London and New York City. By the time Amalia connects with Minnie Padgett, or actually Lady Padgett, she has been married to British royalty for a number of years and is part of the inner social circle of the Prince of Wales, who of course later becomes Edward VII after Queen Victoria's death. She does indeed do his portrait, plus one of his mistresses and later his wife. And this becomes a touchstone for Amalia's career and helps create some very exciting adventures and we'll highlight two of those in 1899. Early in that year, through now her multiple trips to London for portrait work, her notoriety reaches out to Russian royalty and she gets invited to paint Duchess Maria Pavlovna, who was the wife of Grand Duke Vladimir, the uncle of Tsar Nicholas II. She is thrilled by this and knows this work will further increase her business. She arrives in St. Petersburg, Russia, and on the day to start the portrait, she starts to leave her hotel and then receives a summons in person to go to the Winter Palace to paint Tsarina Alexandra. She has to provide, of course, profuse apologies to the Duchess and goes to the palace. With some embarrassment, however, feeling she is not properly dressed since the trunks carrying her better clothes had not yet arrived. She arrives at the palace and finds the primary language spoken there is English, which is quite surprising. When she meets with the Tsarina, there is little formality and she feels at ease with this royalty. Here is a quote from her description of this first meeting. She is very tall and very slender, yet most finely proportioned. Her features are almost Greek in their regularity and her natural expression of her face struck me at once as singularly wistful and sweet sadness that never quite went away even when she smiled. Her eyes are large, soft, lustrous gray-blue with long lashes, and I painted them cast down as they nearly always are, 
for she is shy and hardly ever looks up without a blush. Yet with all the Tsarina's blushing shyness, her bearing impressed me with a sense of something much deeper and graver than mere admiration for a beautiful, graceful woman. After painting her, Tsar Nicholas then decides he wants his portrait done also. While painting him, they actually have a relaxed conversation, again, all in English, about world affairs. Amalia actually connects with the Romanovs on a personal level and even provides gifts for the daughters, which at this time were only Olga and Tatiana. The other two daughters, Maria and the infamous Anastasia, were born in the next three years, and then finally their only son, the sickly Alexei. We know of many of the details of this journey, since Amalia goes on to write a detailed article on this visit in Century Magazine that is published in 1906. An interesting side note is that early on in her visit to the palace, while she is at a dinner sitting next to one of the more senior staff, he discusses the purchase of her new hat bought just that day, and knew of this since quite naturally, of course, they had followed her, and knew of all of her activities in St. Petersburg. Why does this not surprise us? I will note she had, of course, a very slanted view of this monarchy, and at this time was not aware of the inept leadership of Tsar Nicholas and the harsh treatment of the working class. I actually own a copy of the original publication from Century Magazine, but you can find free online versions, which I encourage you to read. It is a fairly realistic depiction of their daily life at this time. Amalia returns to London and New York City before her great next adventure. Amalia had a list of sorts of famous people she wanted to paint, and on that list was Cecil Rhodes, then the manager of the Kimberley Mines in South Africa. Amalia actually travels down to meet with him in October of 1899, arriving in Cape Town during the start of the Second Boer War. She had no invite or agreement from Rhodes to do his portrait. She also meets up with Nancy Houston Banks, who's on assignment to meet with Rhodes and cover the war. Note that Miss Banks and Amalia were friends back in New York City and likely arranged to meet in Cape Town. The risks she took in going inland to Kimberley by train had to be quite evident to her. Their train is actually stopped and bordered by the Boers, but Amalia and Miss Banks are allowed to continue since they are seen as non-combatants. Amalia finally arrives at the Kimberley compound and Rhodes, very reluctantly, admits her to do his portrait. Shortly after, in early November, direct shelling attacks start up on the Kimberley compound and there are reports that in between these attacks, Amalia and Miss Banks accompany Rhodes as he rouses the military staff within the compound to fight back, and the two women go out and pick up shell casings. Note that other military officials were primarily in charge of the defense of the compound, but Rhodes did sponsor a new local regiment within the compound. The whole episode appears in many newspapers later in November. As an example, this article entitled, Cooped in Kimberley, 
two distinguished New York young women on starvation rations. Due to a risk on his life and there being a price on his head, and some conflicts with the primary military command, somehow Rhodes is able to leave Kimberly, and Amalia leaves shortly after and has to finish his portrait back in Europe. When I think of her perilous journey to Kimberly, it conjures up images of Meryl Streep as Karen Blixen in the movie Out of Africa. What really sets her work apart from others at that time? The answer has two parts. From everything that has been written about her, she clearly had an engaging personality and was able to connect with the Gilded Age elite and royalty. But also, and especially for the women she painted, she made them appear as royalty, since there was no doubt this elite class of people considered themselves the royalty of America at this time. And one account states she learned the trick of drapery. And this drapery was literally swaths of cloth, like tulle, draping around her subject's shoulders in a suggestive manner for that day and age. Also, she often had their hair pinned up and tendrils coming down and framing their faces. And, of course, jewelry of precious gemstones and pearls as necklaces and earrings. There was even one article that stated she made unattractive women beautiful. One of the royalties she painted in England was actually wrapped in fabric from window drapery. There is a great quote from a 1910 article on her as follows. Amalia Kustner makes all her women goddesses and all her men knights, and still portrays them with sufficient truth to make them recognizable. And it must be stated that her technique was quite good, and she used specially designed brushes that could have as few as one to three hairs to paint extremely fine features. Her method was as follows. She would first meet with her subject and get a sense of their personality and how best to create these very personalized portraits. Then, either traveling to their location or in the 1890s, often using her studio in the Windsor Hotel in New York City, she would paint her subjects in semi-darkness, which she felt more dramatically accented their features and she would sit by a window with a suspended magnifying glass over her artwork. Throughout her career, there is much coverage of her work and fame, plus coverage of her life sometimes in the society columns. At the height of her fame in the late 1890s, there is a fascinating compilation of her recent portraits of then New York's elite and British royalty in the publication The New York Journal and Advertiser which has on a full page with no fewer than 15 oval images of her portrait work, including these women. Miss Eleanor Leroy, cousin of Mrs. George Vanderbilt, Lady Paget, who we mentioned earlier, Mrs. Orme Wilson, being Mrs. Astor's youngest daughter, and assorted others from the elite and royalty. What of her personal life all these years? In the late 1890s, likely on a trip to Europe, she meets Charles Dupont Coderre, the son of Charles Coderre Sr., one of the brothers in the well-known Coderre Brothers Law Firm. 
They marry in July of 1900. And what's odd is that there is no prior engagement notice and it's a very small ceremony with only their mothers in attendance and a very private dinner later that evening. And the Coderre family is quite well-to-do, though seen more as new money, and they were of French descent, having settled in New York City only 60 years previously. Coderre was the only son, but he had five sisters. And his mother, as was the custom in the Gilded Age, was very focused that her daughters marry well, and most daughters do end up marrying the very wealthy and even royalty. The lack of pomp and circumstance that surrounded their relationship in marriage is an early indication that Amalia was not fully accepted by the Coderre family. In fact, in an article published about 10 years later, one of Coderre's sisters terms Amalia's behavior as outrageous and states that she married Coderre only to spite his sisters. They never had any children, and there's very little record of Amalia having involvements with anyone else. Amalia's career does continue, again somewhat contrary to what career women of that time would have done, who often stopped their work after marriage. Though originally based in New York City, the couple spends more and more time in Europe, especially in England, and Amalia's portrait work increasingly includes more European royalty, plus a second trip in 1901 to paint again the Tsar and Tsarina and their daughters. Other royalty included Queen Maud of Norway and the royal family of Italy. She and her husband even visit Pope Pius X, and she does his portrait, I often wonder where that portrait exists now, and could it be in the Vatican Museum? Eventually, they buy an estate outside of London, and Coderre sells an inherited home in New York City, and they make England their home. After around 1911, most of her commercial work stops, and with her earnings and Coderre's family inheritance, they are quite well off. And Amalia spends the last 20 years of her life traveling through Europe. She is diagnosed with some sort of lung ailment in 1932, not identified as tuberculosis, however, and since Amalia was documented as a smoker years earlier, more likely an ailment from smoking. And she is even sent to a well-known sanitarium in Switzerland to improve her health, but to no avail. She dies in May of that year, and obituaries were printed from all over the world with details of her amazing career. How did Amalia align with the progressive era? Her actions were more that of a career woman of the 20th century. At the start of her career, she knew her value and was unusually aggressive at both promoting her work and demanding very high commissions. And during her career, she would even leave situations that were not to her standards and did not serve her ambitions. Besides her leaving a position at Tiffany's, another example was a New York portrait show around late 1898. She was officially entered and a display was set up of her portraits. But at the start of the show, she actually withdrew her works. Since the lighting was not to her standards and gasp, 
Her miniatures were set next to photographs. Oh, the blasphemy. Though she was clearly ahead of her time, I could not find any records of her directly supporting any suffragist movements. But through her own efforts and strong sense of self, she got equal pay to other men in the arts at that time and promoted herself, unfettered by the more socially accepted personality of a modest and demure woman. I am continuing to research her amazing life, and I am proud to be even a distant relative of this remarkable woman. If you are interested in seeing her works, the best collection is now at the Swope Art Museum of Terre Haute, Indiana, where there are three of her miniatures. Thank you. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.